This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hey, bro, how you doing? Just fine. How are you, Allison? <laughs> I'm good. Well, today we're joined by Matt Argersinger. He works on Million Acres. It's The Motley Fool's sister company focused on real estate. So he's going to talk about real estate investing. And I'm going to share three ways that the workplace is going to change and what you can do about it. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been working from home a lot lately. In is fact, that what this place is that is surrounding me right yeah. now? Yeah, it is. It's your home. It's where you live. It's where you work. It's where you eat. It's where you do literally everything. Educate, clean, uh, eat, everything. Yeah, everything. Uh, and so I wanted to talk a little bit uh, because there's been a lot of stories lately about the way that offices and workplaces are going to change in a post-coronavirus world. And so I'm going to talk about some of those ways that the office is going to change. Some of them are pretty obvious. And then also what you can do about it. My pro tip, but I'm not really a pro. So I mean, maybe listen to my advice or don't. I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, I have no choice. So I'm just going to go ahead and listen. That's right. All right. So the first way that the office is going to change is you're going to be working from home more, or you're at least going to be working with people who are working from home more often. So from Recode, Rani Mola wrote the article, Office Work Will Never Be the Same. And Rani writes that of the 34% of workers who are estimated to be working from home, many will not go back. A survey of senior finance leaders by the research firm Gartner found that 74% of organizations plan to shift employees to remote work permanently. Consulting company Global Workplace Analytics, such a serious name, estimates that when the pandemic is over, 30% of the entire workforce will work from home at least a couple times a week. Before the pandemic, that number was in the low single digits. Now, bro, you used to work from home maybe, maybe once a week. Like you aimed for that. So do you anticipate working from home more in the future? I do, uh, but not permanently. I talked to uh, one of our colleagues today and he said he's going to He's going to try to arrange it so that he only comes in the office once a week, maybe. I couldn't do that. I need to get into the office. I need to interact with everyone. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel, but I certainly enjoy recording the podcast in person more than we're doing it over Zoom. So yes, I will still be coming to the office most of the time. Yeah, I think I'll still be coming into the office most of the time too. But I I do imagine that I, I could foresee myself just not coming in more and working from home a little bit more, but not much more. I don't know. I like being in the office too. Anyway, my pro tip is if you are planning to work remotely, I recommend tracking down a Wall Street Journal article by Lauren Saunders. It's titled Remote Working from a Different State. Beware of tax surprises or beware of a tax surprise. So taxes when you work remotely can potentially get really tricky. So for example, in the article, New York also taxes remote employees who live and work in another state if their job is tied to a New York office. So for they cited an example of one Arizona resident who has been telecommuting for a New York employer since before the pandemic, and he has owed taxes to both states. Yikes. So even though work like tools, which we'll get to more later, allow us to actually physically, yes, you are capable of grabbing your laptop and working from anywhere if you're used to working in an office. Uh, state and local laws 
uh, tax laws and other labor laws have not kept up with the idea of a remote workforce. So definitely look into the rules and definitely check in with your employer to find out what's available. All right. The next big change coming in a post-coronavirus workplace is more and constant communication. So thanks to tools like Slack and Zoom, we are constantly connected. And now even email is too slow. Have you noticed that? Like when someone sends you an email from within your company, it's like, ugh, gross. Yes. No, and I know if I really want a response to something, I can't send it over email because it's like secondary. Yeah, you're never gonna like I feel like email is where is if you're e- if you're trying to reach out to someone outside of your company, but the idea of sending an internal email just feels weird. On the flip side, I hate Slack. I mean, I think it's a great tool, but the fact that anyone can interrupt you at any time drives me nuts. Right? Well, guess what? You're going to hate, hate, hate the world in the future. According to MarketWatch, on March 10, Slack hit 10 million simultaneous connected users, and that's up 1 million from... So in October 2015, they had 1 million. In March 10, they had 10 million. But less than a week later, they added a million users. They added a million in one week starting um, when coronavirus um, started and people started working from home and quarantining. Uh, Zoom announced that they had 300 million daily meeting participants at the end of April, and that was up from 200 million at the beginning of the month. So along with these tools comes the increased expectation of being connected and ready to respond at all times, which I know bro loves. If you're working from home, you're probably already feeling this pain. Yes. And it's just going to get worse. You've got tools like Trello and Asana and other project management sort of software. They're also increasing the speed of how we communicate and get things done from different locations. So what's my pro tip, bro? I have no idea, but I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Uh, You're not going to like it. It's embrace the tools. If you can't work in the software, you're going to get left behind. And for you investors out there, as Recode puts it, collaboration software moved from a nice to have to a must have. So if your company is embracing new software and you like it, you should see if you should invest in it because that's what we did at The Motley Fool with Slack and Zoom. Because we've been using Slack for years and Zoom too. And I own shares of Slack. So when I say I hate Slack, I I actually think it's a great application. It's the, it's the constant pinging and, and craving of your attention that drives me nuts. Yeah, which leads us to yet another point of how my third and final way of how work is going to change. So yes, we are working more remotely. We're working from home more. We are expected to stay constantly connected. Uh, experts are also predicting that our days are going to get longer. And I know that mine already have. So according to productivity software company, time is limited. Uh, I believe they were speaking to Recode on this. The overall number of scheduled meetings went up 7% from February 1 to March 1. Uh, The same company also found that meetings got bigger by 18%, which means more people are being invited to the meetings. And uh, the good news is that the average length of meetings went down uh, by about 10 minutes. So that's nice. That's good. They're shorter, but more people and more of them. Why? Well, probably lots of reasons, but they cite in the article talking to a colleague while grabbing coffee for lunch, for instance, has to be relegated to a more formalized setting. And I know I've had to do that where I've been like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Would you like to have a Zoom meeting and just talk? Like, yes. you can't just say, do you want to go to Starbucks and get a coffee? Nope. If there's anything that fools like to do, it's take a walk and get coffee and talk to somebody. And now that we don't have that, people are going through withdrawal. I don't 
God, I feel weird. Like, like messaging people and being like, Hey, I haven't talked to you in a while. Do you just want to zoom together? Like, <laughs> what if they say no? <laughs> no one said no to me yet, but it's like so sad there. And like yeah. for a while in the start of this, like I was actually like, um, Broido and I were talking about something on Slack. Our listeners will know Steve Broido. He produces shows. He's working at The Fool for a long time. And we were talking about something over Slack. And he's like, I'm just going to call you. And I'm like, oh, what? Oh, okay. <laughs> so there I was on the phone talking to Broido, gabbing as if we're like two middle schoolers. So you're like, hey, what's up? Oh, my God. You wouldn't believe it. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway. So it's, I don't know. It's a, it's. It's fine. It's fine. We're all going to be fine. All right. So not only do we have more meetings, but we're working longer hours. A Microsoft study of their global team software, I guess that's what Microsoft offers for collaboration. We don't use it at the full, uh, found that the average time between a person's first and last usage of Teams grew by more than an hour from the beginning to the end of March. So they're, I guess, positing that uh, people's days are growing by at least an hour as a result wow. of working from home. Uh, I also find that working across different time zones adds to your day. Like it's not unusual to have a meeting at like six o'clock or eight o'clock. And it's like, what? Oh, that's right. That's only three right. for you or whatever. Yeah. So, all right. Well, my pro tip is not having a commute means that you are getting some of your day back, but you have to create boundaries for your time and your sanity, Robert Brokamp, such as riding a bicycle. And, yes. and breathing I mean, apparently. Well, also, but you like did that today, right? Like we we had to reschedule because I was not prepared, and so we taped part of the show. And then you're like, "Hey," and I will like, "Oh, we'll tape tape it later today." And you're like, "Well, actually, can you tell me exactly when? Because I want to go do this thing." And that was a very healthy way of you establishing boundaries and making sure that things are clear. Because you could have just been like, "Okay, I'll just sit around and wait wait to find out when you're ready." <laughs> but no, like that was healthy. Anyway, and you Thank have you. to do that. Thank there you. are there are a lot of articles out there with advice on how to prioritize your time, not check your phone. Um, but a good starting piece of advice I got was from the Muse, and it was to ask yourself, what's driving you to stay connected? And are you afraid of dropping the ball and letting your team down? Are you trying to prove yourself um, or prove to someone else that you're super productive? And once you sort of answer the questions about why you're letting yourself get burned out, why you're letting yourself um, not establish good boundaries, then you can do a better job of learning how to address them, whether it's changing you or better communicating with your teammates. Anyway, read more about it. Just Google it. There's tons of articles. <laughs> <laughs> and that, bro, is what's up. We here at The Motley Fool sure like to talk about stocks. We just can't get enough of them. However, if you have money to invest, there may be other places for your money, or at least other types of stocks that you may not have spent too much time thinking about. I'm talking about real estate, but I'm not talking about it alone. Fortunately, we have someone here who knows a lot more than I do, and that someone is Matt Argersinger. Welcome to The Motley Fool Answers, Matt. Hey, happy to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing these days, a little bit of your foolish history, and how you became such a real estate expert. Sure. Well, uh, kind words there on the real estate expert part. Uh, well, I've, I've been at The Motley Fool for more than 12 years now. And uh, of course, I've spent most of that time working on a lot of our uh, investing products, our stock-focused products. But at the same time, while I was working at The Fool, my wife and I were spending a lot of time building out a real estate portfolio. We, we own several rental properties now in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've also done some investing in the commercial real estate world. 
And so I've had this kind of parallel track where um, stock investor on one side, but then real estate uh, investor on the other side. And so I was happy a couple of years ago when we we launched, we decided to launch Million Acres, uh, millionacres.com. Check it out. It's our free website on real estate. We're 100% owned by the Motley Fool. And uh, our mission is basically to help investors invest better through real estate. And I, I, it's, a, it's an amazing asset class. I don't think a lot of investors know that real estate as a class is about three times the size of the stock market. And it encompasses you know, trillions of dollars worth of, of assets between you know, residential properties, commercial properties, uh, nonprofit government properties. And so billions of square feet um, and you know, any, anything from retail shops to uh, houses to office buildings. Um, we, we cover it all. So a lot of people, of course, know about real estate. We actually all live in real estate. We've seen real estate. A little curious probably these days about the current condition of real estate as we're all working from home and not traveling to malls, not traveling to hotels. So why don't we start off a little bit with what's going on in the real estate market and, and has that changed at all your view of investing in it? Well, it hasn't changed my view so much in, of, invest, of investing in it, but I guess it's it's certainly changed my outlook for some parts of real estate. And so if you think about what's, what's happened, yeah, we're all working from home. And so in a lot of ways, um, you know, if, if you're either a renter or a homeowner, the home has become something actually more important to a lot of us. And a lot of us are probably hoping that we had a better home office right now. And so there's, there's a dynamic happening in the residential side that's, that's interesting. On the commercial real estate side, if you look at what's happened to retail properties or hospitality properties, think destinations, travel locations, um, or uh, you know, think about Las Vegas and the big conventions that people are so used to going to with thousands of other people. Well, those have, everything's really ground to a halt there. And so you've seen you know retail shops closed, restaurants closed. You've seen hotels, which you know normally need about seventy-five percent occupancy to actually make money. Are dealing with about 10% occupancy right now. So in the very short term, it's been disastrous for a lot of real estate. And you're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of distressed assets, foreclosures, bankruptcies uh, on that side. And then I think if you start to look out farther, okay, let's say we get past the worst of this COVID-19 crisis and we're in a, the economy's picking back up, restaurants, stores are opening again. What does that say about the behavioral changes that might come about with real estate are more of us going to be working from home uh, in the future. Has e-commerce accelerated to the point where now we don't need as much retail anymore? We're actually a lot of us, more of us, are ordering more things from home or more things online and, and getting them at home. And is the office? You know, we're, we're all so used to in previous years spending most of our week um, at an office. You know, from nine to five or, or more. And is that going to change? A lot of us are a lot of us can be working from home more often during the during the week and what does that mean for office real estate do we need as much office square footage especially downtown and cities as we needed in the past and so i tend to think change happens slower than most people think even though it looks like it's kind of blowing up on our faces right now so i expect probably as the economy picks up we'll, we'll mostly go back to normal but i think there will be some changes on the margins and it's definitely affecting of uh, you know affected of how i think about certain parts of the real estate market so you talk about things being sold at distressed prices. For some people, they might perk up their ears and be like, okay, maybe now is a time to buy. So let's start at the basics. Why should someone consider being a real estate investor? 
Uh, well, I think there's there's so many ways. I'll, I'll list uh, a few of my favorites. Um, and, and by the way, when we talk about real estate investing, I know a lot of us probably listening and, and on the panel here are homeowners. Um, I definitely don't consider a primary home an investment. And it shouldn't be because if you really think about it, you know, it's a place where we call home, the amount of upkeep we put into it. And, and we're not necessarily treating it like an investment, even though maybe in the future we can sell it for a profit. And that's and that's nice. But for one, I think when you look at real estate and real, you know, investing in real estate, whether that's owning a rental property, uh, buying commercial assets, or even just investing in real estate investment trusts, which are publicly traded in the stock market. If you look at the, the track record of real estate, it's pretty tremendous. Um, just looking at real estate investment trusts, which have been around since the 60s, and these are general, basically just mutual funds of real estate, if you think about it. The average REIT in the market has uh, over 100 properties. And so it's a highly diversified portfolio of real estate that you can invest in using your brokerage account. Uh, if you look at the performance of REITs going back to the early 70s, REITs have not only outperformed the stock market um, on an annual total return basis, so outperforming the S&P 500, They've actually done so with about 50% of the volatility of the stock market. And so just looking at REITs, which is the most cost, cheap and cost-effective way to invest in real estate, it's been a really superior investment over that stretch of time. And then I would say the other thing I love about real estate is it's a real tangible asset, right? We can see what we're investing in, whether it's a building or a portfolio of, of real estate. They're, these are real assets. And these real assets come with steady income normally. Um, most, you know, a lot of us who have been renters in the past, we're used to signing, you know, one year lease, six month lease to, to, you know, rent a property. Well, in the commercial world, those leases go from five, seven, even 10 plus years. And so if you think about it, you've got a, a tenant that's in there signing a lease that's going to pay you rent for the next five plus years. And by the way, every year, usually that, that, that lease payment is going up by inflation or some other index. And so very steady income. And then lower volatility, like I mentioned, and then layered all around that, which is really probably the most exciting part we can talk about later, is just all the tax benefits you get for being a real estate investor that you don't necessarily get um, in the stock market. Right. So REITs, uh, just to back up what you said, right? It's so easy. You just go into the market and you just buy a stock or an ETF. I own the Vanguard REIT ETF. Um, REITs have higher yields because they generally distribute more than 90% of their income. Like the REIT, the Vanguard REIT ETF yields 4.1% nowadays. Besides the lower volatility, it's not highly correlated to the S&P 500 like a lot of other stocks. So you get a little diversification to it too. So that's nice and easy. Once you start moving into the other stuff, it's certainly a little bit more hassle and a little bit more work. And I would, I would say probably the, indiv the typical individual doesn't even think that they can invest in commercial real estate on their own. But that's not really true. You can do it, right? You can. Um, today, it's actually easier than it's ever been. And that's really, if you go back a bunch of years ago to the Jobs Act and the provisions that came out of that to enable individual investors to invest directly in not just real estate, but kind of private investments. And so we've had this rise of crowdfunding. And so now, a lot of deals you can see in the, in the marketplace, you can invest in sort of single asset institutional quality real estate um, the, uh, that you can invest in, you know, from your laptop, just as if you were buying a stock in your brokerage account. So over a million acres, you know, we've recommended uh, several investments or well, over a dozen investments now, for example, a, uh, a new um, apartment complex that's being built in Chicago, a office 
building that's being redeveloped in Atlanta. Um, we've, uh, we actually invested in Nobu, the restaurant Nobu, downtown DC. Um, we, we own the property there. Um, and that, you know, Nobu is a famous Japanese restaurant and we get a nice steady distribution from that restaurant in addition to getting a percentage of the gross revenue from the restaurant. So I'm just throwing out some examples, but so these are all possible. And, you know, more than 10 years ago, you'd have to be wealthy, connected, probably have $250,000, $500,000 to invest in these types of properties. And now you can do it for as little as $10,000. Um, so very easy and very accessible. And it's getting accessible, more accessible every day. Since you mentioned them previously, why don't you touch a little bit on the tax advantages of investing in real estate? So for, for a private homeowner, you know, what's, what's immediately great is that if you, you know, you own, you own your primary home and you sell it um, in the marketplace, you can, you can take up to $500,000 in capital gains tax-free in that, which is incredible. Just imagine if you could do that in the stock market. Um, you can't. Um, the other thing that you get, of course, in, as a primary homeowner is the mortgage interest tax deduction. Now, I know that's been limited a little bit nowadays with the, the change in the tax laws and the provisions there, but it's still out there. It's still for most homeowners or, or not most, I should say, but a lot of homeowners, you can still deduct your mortgage interest in, on your tax bill, which is great. In the commercial world, it gets even better. <laughs> so not only do you get a lot of favorable treatments in terms of capital gains, you also get to take advantage of depreciation um, in, in a major way. So most assets, um, you know, you can depreciate a certain amount on an annual basis. And it's really, these are really non-cash, a non-cash expense you're taking against the value of the property. And what that does is it offsets the income from the property. Uh, and then you can, you keep depreciating the asset, keep sort of deferring the taxes on your income until you go to sell much later on. So you're getting this natural sort of tax sheltering just by owning real estate. So just using my rental properties in DC that I own for, you know, most years, Thankfully, um, my wife and I get a positive cash flow from owning those properties. But most years, we also don't really pay taxes on any profits because oftentimes the cash flow we're getting is being offset by the depreciation expense. Um, and that now just take that to the commercial world where it's where it's 10x that, and you can see the benefits of, of investing in real estate. You know, um, they're really unfair compared to other asset classes. It is kind of bizarre when you think about it, right? Because you're t you get to take depreciation because it, the, the presumption of that is that the the building is or the house or whatever is depreciating. It's losing value, but in reality, it's actually probably going up in value or might be going up in value. Yeah, I'd say most cases. I mean, most of the time, you know, depending on the location, of course, you've got a property that's probably at least depreciating by the the amount of inflation every year or the cost of construction, however benchmark you want to use. But yeah, the government can tell you now that that asset is depreciating. So take that expense off your taxes. What about uh, you You own these properties in um, DC? Um, I know on Million Acres, there have been some articles or at least parts of articles talking about vacation homes. Like, so what about like buying a vacation home that you can sometimes enjoy, sometimes rent out? I don't want to name any names, but someone I'm married to loves this idea. I'm a little more skeptical. What do you have to say? Oh, now I see why we've had Matt on the show. You're looking for free <laughs> financial guidance. I got it. Okay. Uh, no. So the, the great thing is most of the same benefits you get from owning a primary home actually still apply to a vacation home. So you can actually, if you treat your vacation home as a vacation rental, 
Um, so let's say you have a vacation home, maybe you use it 60 days out of the year. It's a beach house or it's a, it's a ski condo. So you're using it, you know, a bunch of weeks during the year, but maybe you're renting it out the rest of those weeks. So during the period where that vacation rental is rented out, um, you can treat it basically just like a business. You know, you're getting rental revenue from people who are staying there. You're depreciating the asset. You're taking, you can, you're taking utility expenses, um, you know, repairs, maintenance that you have to do, all that stuff, property management fee, all those are expenses that you can take away from the the, prop, the rental revenue, you know, and, and that gets factored into your taxes. So it is, and I'm very biased here, but it is a very cost-effective way to own a vacation home if you're able to do that and take advantage of it. Uh, so in a couple of days, we're having our Fool Fest at home. Normally, we have Fool Fest as a big gathering of hundreds of people, but we're doing it remotely. Uh, but one of the presentations that I'm helping with, along with Brian Feraldi, is on the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. And a lot of those folks were able to do it by buying up rental properties while they were working, and they're able to retire in their 30s or 40s because they're living off the income of these rental properties. You make it sound so easy, but aren't you also then maintaining all of these rental properties? No, no. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think a lot of people underestimate the I know they're underestimating the amount of hassle it takes to own a rental property because I certainly did when I started, when my, my wife and I started buying rental properties. I mean, there's, you, you have to deal with tenants. Um, you're inevitably going to have a bad tenant or two or three. Um, you know, sometimes you're lucky you'll have a great tenant. We've, in one of our properties, we had the same tenant for almost three years now. Really have never heard from them that much. They pay the rent on time. They've had maybe one issue the entire time they've rented the house. We've also had tenants where I feel like we're hearing from them every two weeks on some issue. So, and yeah, it's, uh, I've, my wife and I have spent our fair amount of weekends fixing plumbing issues, you know, talking to tenants, replacing kitchens. It's, uh, it takes, it takes a lot of work. The nice thing is what we talked about earlier, whether it's REITs or with some of the crowdfunding investment ideas, you can be a real estate investor and get and take advantage of a lot of benefits without being the, the hands-on landlord. Uh, so there, you know, it, it depends on how much, how much time you want to put into it, how much risk you want to take. Um, and if you can determine all those things, um, there's just multiple ways to invest in real estate. Any other downsides we haven't talked to when you talk about the crowdfunding, for example, uh, my first question is how, uh, how long do I have to lock up my money? Yeah, that is great. That's one of the key, the key risks versus say investing in REITs. If you're investing in these crowdfunded deals, you're basically, you're basically becoming a private equity investor. And your capital is going to go in and and at the bare minimum, I'd say expect your capital to be locked up for at least three years, probably five years, maybe even seven to 10 years. And because what you're doing is you're buying an equity in a property. Maybe the property is either being held um, as, you know, a fully occupied, you know, um, property that's paying out distributions to you. Or maybe it's a property that is in development or there's some kind of renovation going on. And so the the sponsor or the manager in this case that you're investing with has a business plan. They're going to go in, they're going to renovate this office building, let's say, and in two or three years, they're going to lease it up, get it back to a, what they call stabilized, which is maybe 80% occupancy. And then they're going to look to sell the, the, the building. And usually that's what you're looking for. So I'm getting my distributions, but I'm really hoping that they sell the building for profit and I get you know, a profit or a, a nice return on my investment. Well, what can happen is imagine if you were trying to sell a building over the last three to four months in the midst of this crisis. Well, not only are you probably unable to sell, um, and not only are you probably getting a little bit of screws tightened on the financing side, but um, you're, the value of your asset might be down 10 or 15%. And so as a manager, you're thinking, well, you know what? I'm not going to sell the building now. I'm going to wait. 
maybe a year from now, but all you've got to go out and tell your investors, look, we, we thought we were going to sell this building in three years, but now it looks like it's going to be maybe four years or five years. So your capital is going to be tied up um, even longer. So I think liquidity is number one, number one initial risk of getting into these deals. But there's also greater risk of investing in a single asset versus a REIT, which might have 100 properties. And so if a REIT runs into problems, it might be because of five or six of its properties that run into trouble, but it still has a huge portfolio of assets to deal with and probably a good amount of access to the, to the financial markets. Um, when you're dealing with a single asset, if that single asset runs into trouble, you run the, a high risk of losing all your equity in it. Um, so higher return, but definitely higher risk when it comes to these crowdfunded deals. Uh, so in in my rural retirement model portfolios, we have an allocation of 5 to 10% to REITs, depending on where you are along the road to retirement. How do you think in terms of how much someone's net worth should be allocated to real estate? I think you got to up that model, bro. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, you know, I think if you're starting out and you don't know a lot about the asset class, I think 5 to 10% can make sense. I mean, for someone like me who's been investing in real estate for almost 15 years, it's like 50-50 between real estate and stocks. And that's because I, I look back at the performance of, of REITs, just as an example, and I see the steady returns, the income, the lower volatility. And to me, it's this is probably a little too aggressive, but I always, I almost feel like REITs could be a good substitute for bonds or or at least half of the bonds, maybe if you're if you're if you say 30% of your portfolio is a fixed income, consider maybe what about half of that to real estate? It's not as safe. But if I look at over time, if I look at the volatility and I look at the steadiness of the returns and the income, it's actually very similar to bonds, but you're getting a higher return. Uh, so I'm, I'm I, again, I'm biased, millionacres.com. Um, there's a lot. We have tons of articles and content there about this. But, uh, you know, if you if you understand the asset class and, and got a little more risk tolerance, I, I could see real estate being 25 to 30 percent of one's portfolio pretty easily. Okay, so someone is convinced, at least intrigued, what's the first step they should take? Obviously, they should visit millionacres.com. What else should they do? I think after that, well, if you go to millionacres.com, the other thing there too is we have this great ebook. It's totally free that you can download. I want to say it's like 40 pages long. So very comprehensive on getting started with real estate, various aspects of real estate investing. Uh, but I think exactly what you said earlier, bro, the VNQ, which is the Vanguard Real Estate, ETF. You know, if you're just looking for a very cheap, cost-effective way to get some exposure to real estate, um, I think the VNQ has been around since 2004. It's delivered like an eight or nine percent annual total return for 16 years, which is pretty good. And it gives you that it gives your portfolio kind of instant exposure to a very diversified basket of real estate. So I'd probably start there, and then maybe once you get comfortable there, and you have some more capital, maybe some REITs. Um, you know, get some diversification with some you know multifamily REIT. An industrial REIT, an office REIT. If you're really risky, maybe a retail REIT or hospitality REIT right now. Um, so give, maybe build a basket of REITs that you can then own, plan to own for a bunch of years. And I think I think it'll really pay off. Well, this has been really helpful. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. If we end up buying a cabin in the mountains, my wife will thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, bro. Well, before we go, uh, we'd like to close with some sort of fun diversion, as Bro calls it, like walking or breathing air or just our recommendation for our listeners out there. So, Matt, would you like to go first with your recommendation for this week? Uh, sure. It's a, it's a little specific to where I live right now. I kind of live on a farm out in rural Virginia. So this maybe not everyone can do this, but there is an awesome relief you get when you start chainsawing things. 
Um, so, and, and so I've got, I've got, you know, I got the regular chainsaw, right. But then I've got the pole saw, which so you can get the, the trees that, and it's, yes. so the, problem, the short story here is that we have a lot, unfortunately, a lot of dead trees on our property. And so, um, I just, you know, in the afternoons or on the weekends going out there and just cutting down some dead trees and cutting them up, it's, it's been an awesome diversion. And by the way, then we, we kind of build these, uh, big bonfires and then every week or so we have a big bonfire. So, oh, that's Whoa. nice. That's cool. Yeah. Are you a fan of splitting wood also? Is that fun with, you know, with the axe? You Love really splitting wood. Got the axe. Got the splitter thing, you know, get in there. So I'm, I'm going to have so much firewood. You know, I, I, I should probably start giving it away. I'll come to D.C. probably when everything opens up in the fall and start just giving people free firewood. <laughs> Here's a log. Sign me Put up. I'll buy some. Yeah, it. me too. I'll me bring too. some to Full HQ. I'll bring a whole truckload of firewood to Full HQ if people take it. If it ever opens again. If it ever opens again. <laughs> oh. All right, Rick, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I, I was going to say that, you know, if you're all sitting around with nothing to do, try doing your taxes because I, for one, have not done them yet. I'm working on that now, but that's not fun. No, um, I came to the realization that keeping in touch with old friends who are far away, who are your best friends from college or whatever point in life is just as easy as keeping in touch with your nearby friends. So I've done some reaching out to old friends. And uh, I recommend everybody do the same. I, I sent a random email to a friend of mine. Remember last week, I, I recommended playing Dungeons and Dragons with your kids and stuff. Well, this is the guy who was my high school dungeon master. You know, the one who really held us together as a group. I sent him an email just saying, hey, I was thinking about you the other day. been playing some D&D with my kids. And he sent back this long email that says, You've you've written just in time. We've just embarked on this new campaign, and we have a new character that we need. To... Oh my god! So wait, basically, wait, I'm involved with type, an online. He typed his words that way. In oh the, yes, in the mythical Absolutely. leader voice. I could read you the email, man. It's totally Hark, mythical. Rick. these many years, Forsooth. Well, su- suffice to say, I am very happily re-engaged with a bunch of friends from high school whom I hadn't realized how much I missed. So it's really fun to be back in touch with old friends. I recommend reach out to somebody who you think probably doesn't remember you because they do and they'll be happy to hear from you. Yeah, it's crazy with those old high school friends how you just like it's like no time has passed and you just click right back in with each other. It's really totally. amazing. High school friends, college friends, yeah. group house friends. Yeah. For, you know, because you know the old adage that like, you know, dads don't have friends, moms have friends and their friends have husbands, you know, that's so it's like from back in the day when you when you really were choosing your own friends, those friends last. I think that's pretty spot on, to be quite honest. Uh, all right. Well, my recommendation this week is fringe sports. And by which dun, dun, I mean, dun, dun, dun. and I'm not like I'm probably the 12th person that's told you guys this, but marble races is something that you can watch on YouTube and they're amazing and compelling. And it's crazy how you suddenly really, really care about marbles and the competitiveness of marbles going down a track. Uh, and apparently there's also sports like professional tag, which is very compelling, which you can watch on YouTube as well. Um, <laughs> and and other fringe sports like that. So they're not live, of course, because nothing's really necessarily going on right now. Although marble races, I think they're about to start a new season here. Um, but it's not like you don't already know who won professional tag from like last year. So go, you can go ahead and watch it and get invested in a new sport. 
quote. Why is it that like classic children's games are all becoming professional? Like there's a new TV show called The Floor is Lava, where it's like obstacle courses where you can't touch the floor and you fall in it. It's like, is it just Gen Xers not letting go of childhood? Is that what's going on here? A a national failure to launch of (laughs) millions and millions of people, apparently. Hi, right, bro. Big, big uh, closer. Have you guys heard of drinking water? I'm a big fan. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I will second Matt's, uh, not the chopping of wood necessarily, but having the bonfire. So my daughter is a senior in high school, very bummed, no prom, no ceremony, nothing. Oh. So we had a bonfire in our backyard, invited her to some of her friends, had some good social distancing with s'mores. She loved it. Uh, and then the other thing I will point out is doing the research for the uh, the fire movement. And some of you have ever done the research, you know that a lot of them are actually big bikers because one of the things they do is save money by selling the extra car and then they ride their bikes everywhere. Over the last month, I've been biking three to four times a week. I'm working up to a 50-mile bike ride between uh, up to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Uh, my son's doing it as well. So highly recommend on a bike. Mr. Money Mustache, who's one of the big big figures in the fire movement, calls biking the essence of life. And I have to agree with him. You know, the bonfire is a great place to play those new songs that you wrote on the ukulele. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, Matt, thank you again for joining us. You bet. It's, good time. it's, been, it's been great to have you. Please come back. Uh, the show is edited happily Habitat, 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 habitually by Rick Hengdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Don't worry about it. Keep going. Leave it in. Doesn't matter. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.